Angels play an important role in God's economy. He and the Son employ their angels to deliver messages, which is the literal meaning of the Greek angelos, their messengers, to reassure and comfort humans, to fight for and protect humans, and to carry literal judgment to humans. The three angels presented in the passage before us, Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12, are delivering three different messages. The first offering hope by means of the gospel. The second forecasting the approaching fall of Babylon the Great, which in the Revelation represents, quote, Antichrist's worldwide political, economic, and religious empire. That's how John MacArthur succinctly describes it. More on this later. And the third angel pronouncing the doom that awaits those who worship the beast. These three messages have a central theme. Judgment is imminent and constitute the offering of God's final avenue of escape, His last offering of salvation extended before the axe falls, followed by a clear promise of that which awaits those who turn down His offer. Even as various plagues and judgments have been meted out, <laughs> I can well imagine that to those on earth, they must seem by now interminable, unrelenting, day after day, year after year. God still offers unbelievers one last warning before the final, absolute, no turning back, judgment descends. Let's read the first portion of our passage, verses 6 to 8. Chapter 14, verses 6 to 8. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the seas and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So let's get right into this. The first angel. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And the astute among us may have noticed that the NASB version was a little different than what Dan read. We'll get to that. There seems to be no significance to the adjective another, apparently just meaning something along the lines of, well, here's, here's one more vision of an angel, of another angel. There is, however, significance to where the angel is. He's flying in mid-heaven, the ESV says the same thing using different words, while the NIVs are 
rather disappointing. The word translated mid-heaven, let me give it one shot. If I blow it, then I'll give up. Meseronimiti, got it. Which means the zenith, the sun at the meridium. That is, the angel, as the ESV has it, is directly overhead. The brightest, the highest, and more importantly, the point in the sky most visible to the most people on earth. And remember the common phrase in God's word, those who live on the earth, always refers to unbelievers. Because it's important, we need to split a few hairs here to understand just what message the angel is bringing. First, in our common versions, by that I mean the versions common to most of the people in this church, only the NASB and ESV have it correct. It's an eternal gospel. The rest have the, implying the familiar New Testament gospel. But there's no definite article in the text, in the, in the Greek text itself. Second, it says it is, it is an eternal or everlasting gospel. So there must be something different about it. Third, the word euangelion in the Greek translated gospel means good news. But verse 7, which gives us the content of the angel's message, is not the familiar gospel of salvation in Christ through His atoning blood. So there's something different about this gospel. It is not the one you and I have grown up with. So what are we to make of this? Well, I think J.A. Seiss says it best. He writes, Paul once said, If an angel from heaven preach unto you any other gospel than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And when he so said, he spoke the very truth of God. But it is the truth with special reference to the present dispensation. Till the church period has come to its end. For here, when the judgment is come, an angel from heaven preaches, and what he preaches is not the everlasting gospel, as the English version is, but a gospel everlasting. It is not indeed another gospel, but it is in, it is in inner substance the same old and everlasting gospel, but now in the dress and features of a new order of things. The gospel as its contents shape themselves in its address to the nations when the hour of judgment is come. And the great final administrations are in hand. He continues, Of course then, we have here another dispensation. A different order of things from that which now obtains. The same is also intimated in the features of the word preached. It is no longer the meek and entreating voice beseeching men to 
be reconciled to God, but a great thunder from the sky, demanding of the nations to fear the God as over against the false God whom they are adoring, to give glory to Him instead of the infamous beast whom they were glorifying, to worship the Maker of all things as against the worship of Him who can do no more than play His hellish tricks with the things that are made. And all this on the instant, for the reason that the hour of judgment is come. It's J.A. Seiss. Early on, we discussed the different and progressive dispensations. It was in chart number two. And here we see them coming into play. The dispensation of grace, the present church age, this age, is now over in our narrative. It's no longer the age of grace. In our dispensation, angels do not proclaim the gospel of grace. They do not preach. But during the tribulation, they will. And although his message is technically not a different gospel, Galatians 1, 6-9, it is a gospel for a different time, a different situation, a different sort of people dwelling on the earth. As you work your way through God's Word, as you read through God's Word, you see the different dispensations, even if they're not called that in God's Word. You see Him dealing with His people in different ways at different times. And here's another example of this. Just moments before final judgment, before Christ returns. This is not a graceful gospel, but a more forceful, imperative gospel. Frankly, it's a gospel for which I lobbied at the end of session 38. A fire and brimstone gospel. But now verse 7. The angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. It's the same gospel just presented in a different manner. This is delivered forcefully to every nation and tribe and tongue and people as a last chance imperative. So let me offer it at grave risk to, for bodily harm a lample paraphrase. Before you know it, in every one of you, excuse me, back up. Before you know it, every one of you is going to be knee deep in hellfire. This is a last call. Declare yourself for the true God. Give him glory instead of that pitiful human you've been following. Do it now or you will burn for eternity. Now that's the Gospel. But it's presented differently than we typically hear it in our time. Finally, John Walvoord offers an interesting take on this good news. He writes, The everlasting Gospel seems to be neither the Gospel of grace 
nor the gospel of the kingdom, but rather the good news that God at last is about to deal with the world in righteousness and establish His sovereignty over the world. This is an ageless gospel in the sense that God's righteousness is ageless. Now that's an interesting take. He's saying that this is a gospel, a good news, for believers. For those martyrs lying under the altar of heaven. Good news. God is answering their prayer. This is indeed the Gospel. It is good news that God is declaring His righteousness once and for all. And more on this at the end of the session. And I want to add here, you know, as, as many of you know, I always send my notes to our pastors and Gary Crandall, usually Thursday or Friday. And Gary offered something that I thought, oh, it was, I, I wrote him back. I said, I missed that. Thank you. I don't have time or room to add it now. We'll deal with it in our next session. But Jesus speaks of this gospel in his eschatological discourse in Matthew 24, 14, where we've been before, but I I missed the connection to this. He speaks of it. He also foreshadows verse 12 in our text. And so we'll discuss that in our next session when we get to verse 12. So I'm, I'm grateful to Gary for pointing that out. And he always does it graciously. He doesn't, he doesn't do like Merrill did to me one day after class. Sit down. <laughs> he came over and said, sit down. I'm going to set you straight. <laughs> that was gracious too, but there's a little more pointed. Merrill, great teacher. The next two angels punctuate that gospel message with the bad news for all those who were rejected. Still good news for us. Verse 8, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The seventh bowl of wrath announced in Revelation 16, verses 17 to 21, records the actual fall of Babylon with all of chapters 17 and 18 adding details subsequent to the fall. And it's there that we'll dig into the details of Babylon in the Revelation. But for now, this verse contains the following description for Babylon. Quote, She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion, or as Dan's said, or wrath, the word is thumas, which can be translated either way, of her immorality. To what does this refer? Who or what is Babylon? I said earlier in the re that in the Revelation, Babylon represents Antichrist's worldwide political, economic, and religious empire. Let's add some more details to that. Because this can be rather confusing to the casual reader. Where'd Babylon come from? We hear the name Babylon and, of course, think of the city on the Euphrates River, which is modern-day Baghdad. 
the Babylonian Empire founded by Nimrod, Genesis 10.10, subsequently ruled by, among others, Sargon I, Nebuchadrezzar, which is the Bible's Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar. Our present verse echoes the prophet Isaiah. 21.9, Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. That's a prophecy of the city of Babylon falling, literally, before the Assyrians. But that's not what is referred to in the Revelation. In the Old Testament, Babylon was the literal city-slash-empire, representing the very worst example of licentiousness, immorality, and corruption. In the New Testament, the time of the Apostle John recording the visions of the Revelation, remember, our, our author is in the first century on the island of Patmos, so he's, he's looking, he's bridging over us to see what's going to happen. Being shown visions of what's going to happen. In the New Testament, that dubious distinction was held not by Babylon, but by Rome. So we could say, as do many scholars, that the, time, that the name Babylon here simply refers to the restored Roman Empire pasted together by Antichrist. That may be true, but it doesn't give the full picture. There's much more behind this Babylon. I don't do it often, but I'd like to quote from Alan F. Johnson's commentary. For the most part, for this study, he's way out there. He's over, either over there or he's over here. So I haven't used him very much. He's been little help in this study, but his comments here are very helpful. This is what Johnson writes. It is simply not sufficient to identify Rome and Babylon. For that matter, Babylon cannot be confined to any one historical manifestation, past or future. Babylon has multiple equivalents. The details of John's description do not neatly fit any past city, whether literal Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, Rome, or even Jerusalem. Babylon is found wherever there is satanic deception. It is defined more by dominant idolatries than geographic or temporal boundaries. Now, Here's the punchline. The ancient Babylon is better understood here as the archetypal head of all entrenched worldly resistance to God. Babylon is a trans-historical reality including idolatrous kingdoms as diverse as Sodom, Gomorrah, Egypt, Babylon, Tyre, Nineveh, and Rome. So here's the bottom line. Johnson. Babylon is an eschatological symbol of satanic deception and power. It is a divine mystery 
that can never be wholly reducible to empirical earthly institutions. It may be said that Babylon represents the total culture of the world apart from God, while the divine system is depicted by the New Jerusalem. Rome is simply one manifestation of the total system. That's good. It's a good way to think of Babylon here in this context. And by his definition, we're living in it. We live in Babylon right now. Here, the second angel prophesies. He confirms that the corrupting influence of Babylon is doomed. For the time being, we'll leave it there until we get to chapters 17 and 18. So far, the first angel holds out a last chance for unbelievers to repent, to follow God and His Christ instead of Antichrist, and thus avoid the lake of fire. The second angel has proclaimed that very soon, the immoral culture of which they are a part is doomed to fall. Now the third angel puts the frosting on the cake. Let's read verses 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So let's look at verses 9 to 10. <clears throat> We now have a third angel offering a third vision of the imminent future. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The casual reader may not realize it at first, but this passage, verses 9 to 11, in conjunction with the previous, verse 8, is a powerful, gut-wrenching, picture of what awaits those who reject Christ. The metaphors employed, drink of the wine of the wrath, mixed in full strength, are not just florid euphemisms for the sake of color. They present a hideous turn of events from what we now experience in this dispensation. Pentecost recorded in Acts 2, just after Christ's return to the Father, marked the beginning of the church age. 
And almost 2,000 years later, we remain in this dispensation of grace. We are in the same dispensation that the disciples were in in the first century as they created the church or as the Spirit created the church would be a better way to say that. Every day of our lives as believers, we dwell in God's grace. Now stay with me here. I'm, this is in contrast to. Every day of our lives as believers, we dwell in God's grace. We are enveloped in it. We often forget that. But we are. It is His grace that allows the believer to find hope in a fallen world. There is so much of God's grace that He even shares it with unbelievers. It's called common grace. God's common grace that means He, when, when it rains on my fields for my crops, my agnostic neighbor gets the same rain. That's God's common grace. Here in our text is a picture of a far different dispensation. A time when there is none of God's grace on earth. None. In verse 8, we are told that the licentious Babylon the Great has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Okay, that's one cup. All the nations right now are drinking of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Or the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The word is porneas. It's a picture of humanity being utterly enthralled, utterly consumed within an orgy of rebellion, idolatry, and hatred of God. We can't imagine what it will be like. We think it's depraved now. We ain't seen nothing yet. They will be drunk on what Satan has to offer, embracing it to the full. And there will be no hiding what and who they are. God won't need to examine their hearts. It will be branded on their foreheads or on their hands. Right there. For all to see. And to those already satiated with the Antichrist wine, God will dispense a second course of His own intoxicant, the wine of the wrath of God. On any occasion, a potent vintage. But now, quote, mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger, end quote. The Greek is literally mixed, unmixed, and I won't even attempt to say the Greek. It was common in ancient times to dilute the wine. If you were served wine at a dinner, it was almost always diluted. They'd add water to it to dilute it down. This is undiluted. It's the wrath of God undiluted by grace.
This wine will not be so diluted, so weakened in strength, but dispensed untempered by the mercy and grace of God. Let that sink in for a moment. We are surrounded. We are enveloped in God's grace. Even when we experience His correction, His anger, so to speak, it's diluted by His grace. This people, these people will be made to drink of undiluted wrath of God. God's anger, His wrath has always existed. He's the same God today as He was when He opened up the earth to swallow those who dared to rebel against Moses. Number 16, 28-33. The difference is that now, that same wrath is tempered by His grace, even His common grace. But no more. In the moment described by the third angel, remember a messenger sent directly from God with His words, that wrath will be poured out and these made to drink it full strength. There will not be a particle of grace or mercy included in this judgment of pure, undiluted condemnation. <clears throat> Walford writes, the righteousness of God is as inexorable as the love of God is infinite. The love of God is not free to express itself to those who have spurned Jesus Christ. And what will be the fate of these adherents to the beast? Verse 10 continues, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Those who align themselves with the lies of Antichrist will suffer unrelented torture in the lake of fire. No longer a vision, but the actual event in the narrative occurs later. Let's read that. Revelation 19 Revelation 19, verse 20. <clears throat> and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of the fire that burns with sulfur. One thousand years later, Satan himself will join them. Turn the page to 20, chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 10 of our text ends with an unexpected phrase. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, whoa, this, where did this come from? In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Hmm. My guess is that most of us, when we do think of hell, consider it to be a place absent the presence of God. That would be one of the qualities that defines it as being hell, wouldn't it? The absence of God. But Scripture is clear that there's no place at all no place in all of creation shut to its maker. Turn please to Psalm 139. 
Psalm 139. And let's read verses 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Now that's a familiar passage, but consider it now in the light of our text. This psalm makes clear, if I make my bed in Sheol, generally, roughly synonymous with hell, it's the word Gehenna. Jesus often used it. It was literally a place outside of heaven. It was a place where Israel at one time was worshiping idols. And it was a place where they literally, in obeisance to this idol were killing their children, offering them as sacrifices. And then later, it became, it was like the city garbage dump. It was, it was specifically, in fact, not just the garbage dump, it was, play, it was where they emptied the latrines. Because they wanted to make sure that forever and ever now this was a despoiled this was a it was it was a picture of hell because of what israel had one at one time done in this spot they wanted to just make it a hideous horrible place that nobody would want to go and that word gehenna means that and it's also synonymous with hell now what form this presence will take, we cannot say. But if God is omnipresent, and He is, then that would include even the bowels of the lake of fire. Perhaps as John MacArthur suggests, quote, unrepentant sinners will be banished from God's presence relationally. They will not, however, be away from His presence in the sense of His sovereignty and omnipresence even in hell. For many people, even some Christians, this is a bridge too far. It's sufficiently difficult for them to believe that a loving God, how often we hear that, a loving God would send individuals to eternal damnation and torment. It's too much to ask for them to believe that he would superintend their stay there. But I don't think we can read this verse any other way. This brings up another issue that I've mentioned before. How many of us grew up thinking that heaven was the domain of God and hell the domain, the f domain of Satan? That was a... What I had in my head when I was growing up, God's up there, Satan's down there. If I go to hell, I'm going to be down there, Satan's going to be there with his pitchfork, and he's going to be pushing me about. <clears throat> no, it's not, it's not true. God is creator and sovereign over all, all of creation, including the lake of fire. 
And the devil, when he's in heaven and in hell, will be an inmate. Boy, don't strike me down. He's not the sovereign of hell. He's locked up there or will be. Bottom line, kings keep watch over their domain. God created it all. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. John Walver defines for us the phrase forever and ever. He writes, their torment is not a momentary one, for it is described in verse 11 as continuing forever, literally in the Greek, into the ages of ages. Into the ages of ages. The strongest expression of eternity of which the Greek is capable. Without end. Verse 11 seems redundant at first but does drive home the point. It, it stresses that this torment in the fire and sulfurous gases, the guys who've been reading this passage say sulfur, I say brimstone, it's just different translations. Brimstone refers to sulfur. So, of the lake of fire will not be of brief duration, but forever and ever. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. God's Word, no less from the lips of Jesus Himself, is clear that this will be an eternal punishment for those who reject Christ. Turn please to Matthew 18. Hell is not a brief respite from God and His ways. Finishing with nothingness. Many believe that. Okay, there'll be punishment. I'll, I'll be punished for my sins. I'll do a little time in purgatory or hell or whatever. But then, nothing. Just nothing. Many believe that there's judgment, there's punishment, then nothing. That's not what God's Word says. That's what today's culture wants it to say. It doesn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. Matthew 18, Jesus answering His disciples' question about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Didn't they, they seemed to be preoccupied with that, didn't they? says at the end of verse 8, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. He then repeats the application with another body part. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now turn to chapter 25, please. <clears throat> in, his, in his discourse on the final judgment, in which he illustrates how he personally, the Son of Man, will separate the sheep from the goats. He closes in verse 46 with this regarding the goats. Quote, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Wherever you go, it's forever. Up or down. 
In this, Christ is saying that the torment of those consigned to hell will be as eternal, as everlasting as the blessed rest of the redeemed in heaven. Ending on this dour note, we need to remind ourselves that indeed all three of these angelic messengers will bring good news for the redeemed. This passage represents the affirmative confirmation of many, many prayers. How many of us have prayed the prayer? Get them, God. They're evil. Get them. Many prayers for the redeemed for, uh, from the redeemed for justice and the martyred saints under the altar will by no means be the first. Now turn please to Psalm 73. I'd like to close with this. A psalm of Asaph or Asaph. And follow along with me as I read. Let's begin with verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Verse 8. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 11. They say, how does God know? And is, is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Ah, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused you will despise their form. And then he closes with the best part. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. 
Father, let us cling to this promise. As we know full well, the end of your book is a story of hideous pain, righteous judgment, the full unmeasured cup of your wrath. But your book also contains our hope, your promise, that when we have put our trust in you, you will be our God and we will be your children and nothing can tear us apart. And nothing will stop your righteous judgment of those who have turned against you and rejected your Son. We thank you for your truth and this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.